So, uh, welcome to another episode of TWT FM. Me and Freddie are joined on the sofa in reverse configuration, we should point out, just to paint a little picture for our audio listeners, uh, with Mr. Aaron Bastani. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the, the brown sofa. Author, How are you doing? Author Aaron Bastani. Yeah. We'll author, get to that. writer, broadcaster. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, object of hatred for some of the Labour right, whatever you wish to call me. <laughs> Big gains, Aaron. Yeah, a pleasure. What, pleasure for being here. I've had to confess a number of times in the last couple of days that I haven't read people's books, but I have read Aaron's book. Good. It's fantastic. Uh, it's called Fully Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Mm. So that's a quick plug at the beginning to get yeah. everyone to buy it. Well, maybe that's a good way in. So uh, let's break it down. So each of those words. So fully automated. Yeah. Luxury. Yeah. And communism. Mm. Um, so fully automated refers to um, jobs being taken over by machines. Mm-hmm pretty obvious there yeah uh, what about luxury and communism yeah why those words why that sequence um, fully automated I think is probably the most easy to understand part of the title as you've sort of highlighted why because we're all perfectly aware that technology is unfolding at a tremendous rate um, it could have the potential to uh, eliminate jobs for better or worse or at least tasks within jobs which would mean that something which requires 10 people today might require two tomorrow Historically, market orthodoxy was seen as a productivity improvement. And we know with robotics, with machine learning, with deep learning, this is really going to go into overdrive over the next 20 to 30 years. So that's the automation part, luxury communism. <laughs> well, I'm not a technological determinist. So I think, yes, these technologies are fantastic, but they're not going to emancipate people. They're not going to lead to higher living standards. They're not mm. going to serve the interests of the 99% unless we have an attendant political project. Okay, so fully automated luxury socialism. Why the communism part? I suppose that's the final, the final component of the response, which is that I believe uh, these technologies aren't just a continuation of business as usual, but actually within them, they have a tremendously disruptive potential to undermine some of the core features of the capitalist mode of production. Capitalism, what are its defining features? Production for profit and selling your labor for a wage. Now, for people who think those have always existed, they haven't. We had an antecedent economic and political system. Feudalism didn't have those features. And what I say in the book is that I think that as these technologies develop over the next 100 years, we'll, um, we'll see something as distinct from capitalism as capitalism was to feudalism, uh, but it will require a political project to push it in that direction. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Well, I feel like, uh, you know, I've heard lots of discussion around your book and um, lots of good output about it. Uh, one thing that maybe hasn't got as much attention as maybe it could have done is specifically picking out your vision of what luxury looks mm-hmm. like because I don't know if you saw the news story last week about mm-hmm. this like solid gold toilet being mm-hmm. stolen from <laughs> Blenheim Palace yeah. so that's one model of luxury yeah. um, but it's not the only one mm-hmm. maybe th- that's luxury under capitalism mm-hmm. what does I mean on the other hand you know George Monbiot has referred to private sufficiency and public luxury yeah. You know, what's your take on it? I think that's a really great way of putting it. What I would say is, why is a gold toilet synonymous with luxury? It's because gold is itself a very rare commodity. Now, if gold was as common as aluminium, aluminium comes from bauxite. It's one of the most abundant um, elements on Earth. I think it's like 6% of the Earth's core is made out of bauxite. It's obviously very common. Then that wouldn't be quite quite luxurious. It's it's perceived as luxurious because of its its rarity. Um, And what I say in the book is that... uh, in certain spheres of the economy you're seeing such a shift to abundance that it fundamentally attenuates the idea of scarcity creating um, a perceived increase in value 
So for instance, uh, look at music. If you had um, uh, the best record collection money could buy 35 years ago, it would have been, you know, an aficionado's dream, hundreds of thousands of pounds spent, and I'm sure your parents, your grandparents will be very familiar with that story. Today, you have a Spotify account, you pay a few pound a month or whatever it is, depends if you're a student, etc. let's say 10 pound a month, and that's undoubtedly a much better record collection than what they ever had. Mm. And the point is, do you own those records? No, you don't. It's about rights of ownership and rights of access. And we need to construct ideas of public luxury around rights of access. I very flippantly said, you know, infinity pools for everyone. Now, that doesn't mean everybody owns an infinity pool. A, that's ridiculous, uh, and B, it's not, it's not plausible. There are scarce resources. What it does mean is everybody having the ability to access public recreational facilities. We, we might not want infinity pools, uh, which are uh, a form of communal luxury. Uh, and so that discussion around rights of access probably replaces mm. the idea of rights of ownership. The paradigmatic example is in cars, you know. Look at Uber. That's about rights of access. I'd rather use the car. It's much more convenient for me to just get a car wherever I am. Within five minutes it arrives. I don't need to worry about it. its VAT, its insurance, if it breaks down. Uh, and I would prefer public transport infrastructures to include things like that, autonomous electric vehicles. And the... Uh, the disposition is rights of access. The average car doesn't move 95% of the time. Yeah. So clearly the idea of private car ownership is a really stupid idea. So yeah, communal luxury is about changing our relations to these really uh, fantastic things which make our lives better. I guess that leads really nicely onto the question that I'd like to ask, which is about the intention of the book. Mm. And you know, we're sitting here at The World Transformed mm. and the clue's in the name, right? We're all here to imagine new worlds, mm. imagine how we can move forward and create the kind of society that we want to live in. Mm. So when you're writing the book, um, do you see it more as a provocative way of trying to stretch the Overton window? Yeah. Or do you see it as a genuine map <laughs> on moving forward to the future or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I mean, you can do both. Yeah. Uh, and clearly the, the title of the book is intended to provoke. Absolutely. Yeah. Even if you don't agree with the analysis, even if you don't agree with the propositional politics, almost everybody agrees, by the way, with the first third of the book, which is yeah. all these crises we're facing. Yeah, yeah. Even the economists, the Financial Times would accept this is all happening. Um, so, yes, there's obviously an intention to provoke. However, when people introduce me, I spoke um, a few days ago in Hampstead alongside Vince Cable. <laughs> a couple of hundred people there. Great reception. We sold lots of books. But I was introduced as a provocateur. I'm not, yeah, I'm trying to provoke somebody because we live under capitalist social relations and ideology in the Marxist sense means that uh, reality itself is veiled by certain assumptions and forms of common sense, which actually aren't commonsensical. So yes, you've got to provoke people to disrupt those presumptions. Yeah. But no, I, I do also genuinely believe that just as feudalism had internal contradictions, it had a beginning, middle and end, uh, so does capitalism. And I believe that capitalism itself precedes a different kind of mm. uh, economic system. Now. Do I have the blueprint for that? No. Uh, Marx himself very memorably said, I, I'm not here to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. That doesn't mean I'm opting out either. What I do propose in the book is a very pragmatic, which may surprise people if they're only aware of the title, yeah. a sort of very pragmatic roadmap to breaking with neoliberalism, dealing with climate change, dealing with demographic aging, dealing with what automation does <coughs> to underemployment, dealing with a, a really huge crisis of mental health. World Health Organization says that depression will be the world's leading cause of disease I think they call it the health burden by 2030 yeah the roadmap is to break with neoliberalism engage with these challenges but also understand the dividend that comes out of these new technologies I think takes us to something beyond capitalism yeah. as well so I very much mean it as well yeah so I guess this next question is, is slightly more abstract then you say you're not a determinist yeah in that sense 
you say that this is the direction that you wish us to move towards and you think it's possible mm. do you think it's likely and that's and that i guess that comes back to the political context that we're living in both nationally and internationally yeah. That's a really great question. Do I think it's likely? No, I think it's improbable. Which is why people say, oh, you're such an optimist. No, I'm really not. <laughs> and that's in the book. Um, the most likely thing is, in statistics, the best way to understand what's going to happen in the future. This is not always the case, by the way. It's a cognitive bias to think if something's always happened, it will always happen. That's not true. However, if you're trying to have a decent predictor of future events, you know, past events, are a decent, it's called baseline data. So if we're looking at the last 30 years, what's happened? We have emitted far more CO2, methane into the atmosphere, knowing full well of the consequences than we ever did in ignorance. 40% of all CO2 emissions discharged in the history of humanity have been since Taylor Swift was born, right? 85% <laughs> since the Second World War. 25% uh, since the, the first iPhone came to market. 25%. Well, yeah. In about 13, 14 years. That makes sense when you think, of course, China, India. China today, in, in the last three years, has used more concrete than America did in the whole of the 20th century. Yeah. So... Of course, I'm not optimistic. And given all that, the most likely thing is climate catastrophe. And we need to understand climate change not as one of several causes that are all ranged next to each other. Climate change is the background variable to absolutely everything else. If you care about crime, you care about housing, you care about the global south, you care about geopolitics, war, climate change makes all of those far more violent and vicious over the next hundred years. Of course, beyond that, it gets even worse. Uh, we could see warming of four, five, six degrees. At six degrees, most of the planet's underwater or desert. Worse than all that, there's too much methane in the atmosphere for us to breathe. So if somebody's listening to all that, they say, well, he doesn't sound particularly optimistic. <laughs> However, um, one of the reasons why I think we may be living in a computer simulation <laughs> uh, I don't actually think that, but it's plausible, is that you think about this, right? The Earth is 5 billion years old. Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. And yet we're now confronted with probably a 30-year window to decarbonize our energy systems. And we can avoid 2 degrees plus if we enact the kinds of policies Labour outlined today. It's weird. We've been around for 200,000 years and yet it falls on our generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like something, a, a, yeah, a superhero yeah. movie, mm. but it's true. And that means that on the one hand, no, you know, I'm not saying what's likely, but it's still possible. Yeah, okay. Uh, and if we don't take this opportunity, it won't be possible in, in 30, 40 years time. So that's what gives me hope. Yeah. Because it's mm. still not too late. Yeah. yeah. So to change tack very quickly, I, I'm very conscious that the Navarra team are going to kick us out any minute because they're setting up the episode of Tisky Sour uh, in this building this evening. We had your uh, fellow uh, co-founder of Navarra Media on the podcast, James Bartley, the other day, and we were very lucky to entice an impression of Boris Johnson out of him. Now, I wouldn't ask for that from you, mm. but have you got any good impressions of any, of any politicians? I'd love to, or any... Outside of politics. Yeah, how was Vince? Spill the beans on this. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do Vince. <laughs> Politicians. Neither I'm a bit too tired to do impressions. I guess that's my, fine. That's my, fine. You've had a long day. The one, the, one, um, the one I can do, which often it gets a laugh out of people, is Paul Mason. Oh, yes. But he never, he never talks to me about it. So I think whenever I do, he thinks <laughs> I'm taking the piss. Well, he's just texted me a minute ago saying, sorry, he couldn't make it in at 4.30, but we might get him on at some point. Good. So we could definitely he's make him do an impression of you. Yeah, he's here later. <laughs> yeah, say that to him. But please... Uh, preface any conversation about that. Aaron has said you're one of the most valuable left intellectuals in the anglophone world in the last 10 years but no I do an occasional impression of it come on let's have a really quick one before yeah. we wrap up Luke what you've got to understand is that you've got a revolutionary process in the French Revolution and it's the, look, Luke, Luke what you've got to get 
is that the working class actually become an object of its own self-consciousness. <laughs> it's not in 1789 with the Bastille, actually. Look, this, is what, this is what you've got. Look, you've got to remember this. That is outstanding. It's, actually, it's actually in 1791 when the fisherwomen march on Versailles. <laughs> look, we've got to get these bastards out. And you've got to remember, look, you've got the Prussians coming. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is not a joke. Okay? Look, and it's all there in my book. Why well, it's all kicking over everywhere. Why it's often it's better than that normally. <laughs> no, that we don't good. even need yeah. the interview now, do we? I mean, <laughs> it's a good, yeah, staccato quality to it. Uh, yeah, just uh, one final one. I've been asking a lot of people this, but what's your theory of change? Like, how, how are we going to get there? Back to the serious for, for the final yeah. bit. That's a great question. <laughs> no, I, I'm, at the moment, I'm thinking about my next book, and uh, it's precisely that. What is revolution? How do things change? How can you make things change? We make history, but not under conditions of our making is the Marxist way of looking at it. I view revolution, and I talk about this in the book, not to the extent I'd like, because obviously it's quite complex. I'd probably give it 10 pages. I'd love to do a whole book about it. History is composed of these separate fields. Mental conceptions, ideas, social relations, uh, means of production, technological processes, forms of daily life, relationships to nature, etc. And all of these are shaping one another in real time. It's like a constellation of, of things which are moving, right? Imagine they're kind of like wheels which are turning and they're all pulling each other. The question is in which direction. And then that's how you've got to understand the sort of the revolution of, of capitalism. Capitalism, yes, creates new forms of production, but it also creates new forms of relationship to nature, hmm. new forms of selfhood, new relationships to one another, new forms of daily life. You know, the idea of the clock tower being in the middle of the town and people all of a sudden orienting their, their, their experience of the day through this new form of chronology. Uh, and that's contingent on certain technological developments. It creates, in, in, in turn, new kinds of social relation, new forms of production through the, the, the working day, etc. Um, so that's how I understand change. And I think anybody <clears throat> who cares about progressive politics needs to understand that it's not, don't just privilege one of these spheres. Now, look, we've only got a certain amount of time, a certain amount of energy. So I'm not saying you have to do all of them. But if you're a green, you need to understand that, yes, we need to transform our relationship to nature. We need to not really eat meat. We need to rapidly decarbonize. We need to understand that the biological systems of this planet are so integrated that we're actually a part of nature, not di distinct from it. But at the same time, yeah, we need to engage in labor-based struggles around production. You know, and you probably can't engage these problems on of of of, of ecology without also engaging with the problems of, of what might be called labor sociology. Now, equally, uh, I care deeply about women's rights, LGBT rights, etc but that can't be subtracted from a broader conversation about work. And that also obviously feeds into an intersection analysis. You know, it's much easier for a, a wealthier white woman to leave an abusive relationship. It's often still very hard, of course. It's much easier for her to do so than a, a poorer white woman or maybe a, a poorer person of color, poorer woman of color. So my theory of change accepts that intersection analysis and says, look, if we're gonna drive history in the right direction, we need to not just fetishize one of those fields within the broader, broader ensemble. If you just privilege technology, you're a technological determinist. Uh, if you just privilege social relations, that's a pastiche of anarchism, right? If we just relate to each other differently, everything will be fine. No, right? We need new technologies to solve cl the climate crisis, for instance. We need new relations to nature. So that's my theory of change. It's, it's expansive, uh, and I think that means we also have to have a, an expansive understanding of revolution, and that revolution reform binary which characterized 20th century radicalism is not correct. It's silly, and actually Lenin, until 1914, would have called himself a social democrat. And I think that's a politics we now need to kind of re-examine of how radical social democracy, democratic socialism, itself can be part of a broader revolutionary project. Aaron Mastani, author, commentator, and founder of Navarra Media. Co-founder. Co-founder Co of Navarra Media. 
thank you so much for joining us on the World Transform podcast. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Aaron. That's Amazing. Fun. Thank you so much. That's probably for a that. good length for a podcast. It is good. Like it's 10 minutes. Short and sweet. Yeah, that's pretty, really good. Right. Um,